I don't have as many glamorous Barcelona pictures as Jesse. In fact, I don't have any pictures. This is it. This is it. And my post-it note. Because I think the thing that I love that Jesse and Urquhart do so well is um, they tell stories. Stories engages the other side of your brain. You have one side of your brain that is always focused on the facts and the figures. And the other side of your brain is the creative part of your brain which talks um, to you in colours and stories. And what I'm going to try and do with my very coloured pink um, post-it, and then also just a few notes here. Um, I was trying to retell, uh, or rather re rethink some of the stories that I've had over my um, career, um, and looking back to actually almost before my career as well. And I actually wanted to take, maybe this is actually some therapy session I'm doing with myself now. Um, but the therapy session I'm doing with myself is actually taking myself back to when I was um, a seven-year-old boy in Liverpool. Um, I grew up in Liverpool, even though I don't have that much of a Liverpool accent. Um, and there are people in the room that will, that will know. There'll be a lot of people in the room that don't know about VHS cassette tapes. So VHS, my, my kids have no idea about VHS cassette tapes. They don't even know what CDs are anymore. I mean, see, you look at them, like, like what, what's a CD? And I remember for my seventh birthday, I was given the official history of Liverpool Football Club VHS tape. There's two other Liverpool fans in the room. Just excuse me for that. But the thing was, there wasn't any other content available for me, for us, when we were growing up. There was no YouTube where you could watch Haaland's every goal forever, Suarez, Torres, all these things. The only thing that I could watch from Liverpool, apart from the game maybe every three or four weeks, was this VHS tape from Liverpool's history starting in 1892 until the century where the VHS tape came out in 1992. I swear, I watched this video 500 times. No lie. And what it says about me is probably a lot of very odd and strange things, but I was completely addicted. It was the only thing I could watch, it was the only football thing you were watching. And I think it sounds difficult to say, but it's really important also is, I'm number one, obviously a geek because I watched it 500 times. But secondly, I'm completely addicted to football and sport, as we all are in different ways. And we call that addiction a slightly nicer word in football, which is passion. Um, and I completely agree with what Urquhart says slightly before, which is actually what we say passion, passion in sport is the things that sustains us in the long term. It's very easy to say we're passionate about something. But I'll give you um, a Latin lesson very quickly as well, which I wasn't aware of until quite recently. That the actual word passion, uh, its Latin origin is actually pati, P-A-T-I. And pati, to suffer, exactly. And I find it fascinating that the word that all of us use sometimes to be able to explain the positive, the thing that we want to do, the passion, is actually explaining we need to suffer for the thing we really want to do. And that's actually everything that we've heard of yesterday. It's everything we've heard of Urquhart this morning, everything we've heard of Jesse. But, but sometimes it's mixed, and sometimes it can actually be quite difficult to um, explain. But the same point is, I am suffering, we are suffering for our passion because we're doing the thing that's difficult, that's hard, that most people won't do, um, trying to get into the sports sphere, field in lots of different ways. But that is the competitive advantage that all of you have compared to most, because most people won't do it.
literally, they will not do it, human nature or otherwise. Like the thing I love about this weekend is people are giving up their weekends to learn, to hear, to be uh, empathetic enough, to be um, uh, passionate enough, to be open enough to be able to spend their weekends doing the thing that they actually want to do. So I sometimes look back at that seven-year-old boy who watched that Liverpool videotape until it broke. And I remember crying to my parents saying, I need a new VHS tape that they did get me, thank goodness, otherwise God knows what would have happened. And think that that was actually where things started. And I was still in Liverpool, I still remember. This was much before the internet as well, by the way. The only way I could consume content about Liverpool and football was a paper called the Liverpool Echo, which came out every afternoon. We had delivered to the house. And I would wait as soon as I got home for the Echo to be delivered to the house, basically to be able to read through the two or three pages of football content. And it would only usually be match reports or transfer news or whatever it was. But I was completely addicted. I had to know what was going on that day about the football. And what that translated to um, slightly later was all of my family lawyers. My dad's a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer. My cousins were lawyers. Funnily enough, my mum's actually a professional tennis player. But she is, um, and my dad was obviously in the courts quite a lot. The funny thing is, my mum explained to me, is actually I'm a complete product of both of them. My dad in the courts and my mum in the courts, basically just very different ones. Um, so I combined in the middle to be a sort of sports lawyer or a football lawyer to a degree. And what ended up happening is in university, actually, I didn't want to be a lawyer, honestly. I, I, I thought I was going to be a sports agent. It's a good job. <laughs> um, and law was actually the default. Law was the thing which was everyone said, well, just do it because it's a good skill set to be able to start, a good degree, and then you can decide what you want to do from there. Um, and actually what happened in the third year of my law degree, um, I stumbled on the fact that actually a lot of EU law-related matters were to do with sport. Lots of broadcasting cases, the Bosman case, as you might know, there's a really cool case that's going through the European courts on the Super League at the moment, which is going to be really fascinating, loads of broadcasting things. So I decided to do a dissertation in my third year on uh, the Bosman ruling and the new transfer system. And I suddenly, literally, this spark went off on my head. I was like, oh my God, I can combine the thing that I wasn't that fussed about, law, with the thing I was very fussed about, which was football. And I obviously got a good, I say obviously got a great, good grade. I got a good grade because I spent 10 times more the time than any other person spent on their dissertation because I was just interested in reading everything I possibly could about football, the regulations, the, the guidance notes, all of the cases, everything else that happened. And then it sparked another idea in my head. So it's funny how we all have these similarities together. Uh, you had to convince your dad to, to, that actually to do law. Jesse, the same. I, I remember convincing my dad that I wanted to do a master's degree. But the way I had to sell it to my dad was that I was doing a master's degree in a comparative competition law approach based on EU jurisdictional matters. That's how I sold it to my dad. The actual, the actual distinction was, uh, uh, <laughs> the actual title for the uh, Masters was uh, Football Broadcasting Rights in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> so all I had to do was read all of these football broadcasting cases across the UK and Europe and, um, and write an 80,000-word dissertation. And the great thing about that was, um, again, this is very much embracing the geek and the you know, slight um, you know, ad addictive personality that I have in different ways is... I, I, can admit it, we're in, friend, we're in friends and friends. I finished the dissertation in about six months because I'd, just, I'd written what I needed to have written. And I remember going to um, the, my tutor, Mark James, who still is at Manchester University, and he, <laughs> I remember him saying to me, well, 
what are you going to do for five months? <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh, I don't know. So he said, well, why don't you make some um, applications to some law journals and see if you can get any parts of the things that you've written or other things published? And so here is me as a, a MA, a master's law student, thinking I'm never going to get anything published. Um, but ended up publishing two articles, one on broadcasting rights and one on investment in football. Um, got them published, and I was obviously over the moon. My dad was obviously over the moon as well, my mum as well. Um, the problem was, they were in a law journal, law journal that no one reads, so probably about six people read. They're still available if you want to make it seven or eight, but um, yeah, it's a while ago now. But what, what basically happened as a result of um, me, me gaining that quite specific football experience early on was when I then started my law job, and I just want to explain with my law job, was a, an American firm called Jones Day. It had no sports law experience whatsoever. Didn't really have any sports law clients as well. And PS, the year before that, when I was applying to lots of um, law firms, I actually have only applied to eight law firms first time round, just like a lot of people in this room, because I only wanted to do sports, I only wanted to do football, and that's the only thing I'm passionate about. If I can't get a sports law job in the beginning, then it's not for me. And then uh, when, when the first rejection came, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, when all eight rejection letters came from the sports law firms, the only ones I've applied to, I actually probably had to have a little bit of a rethink about what I was, <laughs> what I was going to apply for. So I applied to a lot of different just commercial law firms, which actually, in, in hindsight, gave me a really great understanding of law. That's the thing I realize now. I have to be, without anything else, the best lawyer I can be first. It's always important to focus on sectors and other things in due course, which I'll talk about in a second, but your underlying skill set is the most important thing. And I'm not talking just about law, now I'm talking about if you want to be an accounting like Reese, or you want to be an agent like, um, uh, like Erka and Toby and others and lots of others in the room. If you want to be in marketing, if you want to be in PR, if you want to be in comms, if you want to be in content, if you want to be whatever else it might be, art even. What you have to be able to do is do the underlying job well. It's vital. There is no point being a great sector expert knowing you know things about football or sport if the underlying principles you can't add value to everybody else for, which is obviously really important. But my issue was is that as I started my training contract, my job at this American law firm that I wanted to do more sports law work with, with obviously the background and my degree and my masters that I'd had, is that there was no sports work to do. Um, but what actually I realized quite quickly is I was doing two things in parallel. Every now and then, a sports matter came up um, in the, uh, the law firm. And the reason why it came up was because, there's only a few lawyers in here, but basically whenever there is um, a new matter that happens at a law firm, the person that's doing the matter has to send an email to the rest of the firm, which can be hundreds of people, saying, we're acting for this client against this client on this particular thing. It's called a conflict check, basically. And every time, every time that there was a sports or football conflict check that came up. It didn't matter if it was a property deal, uh, an image rights deal, a boot deal, a transfer, a corporate deal, banking, finance, whatever else it might be. I would, eat, I would literally phone the partner that had written the, the, the conflict check and said, let me help you. Let me help you. And he would go, well, you know, there's quite a lot of work to do. Might not be able to. I was like, don't worry. You don't even need to bill my time for it. I just want to get experience at it. And it happened very quickly, actually, on one of the first cases. We were acting for a banking client that was refinancing um, a, a very big club's debt. You might guess which one it might be. 
Um, and uh, what ended up happening was the corporate partner phoned me up at five o'clock on a Friday. I was literally one minute away from leaving to go to the pub with my friends all in that night and then come back and do some work in a bit. And he said, I've got a call in 15 minutes with Goldman Sachs. They want you to explain to them how broadcasting rights distributions work in the Premier League because they need to understand how much money this club is going to be able to make. And he was thinking, oh, he won't know. I was like, well, I know, it's regulation B13.7 or something. And he was like, oh, can you just explain that to the, the bankers? And I was like, of course, that's easy. Because the truth is, I'd, I'd, already, I'd already read the regulations a lot, but I'd done part of my dissertation on it. So quite quickly, what I managed, I realized is, I actually had a skill set already or a knowledge set um, that people in my law firm would find very useful. I would basically be the go-to football guy. And that continued on at the next law firm that I worked with, where I ended up working on about seven or eight different football club takeovers, simply from looking at conflict checks and seeing, actually, I can help with that, I can help with that, I can help with that, regardless of whether my targets were going to look good, regardless of how many hours it was going to spend, regardless of all the other stuff. And the side hustle that was also happening at that time uh, that I was starting to do was the um, extension of... Um, what I had done with writing some law journals. So uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, so hopefully at some point, I think Holly might come in today at some point so you can meet her, but um, if not, um, well, if you come to other events, she's my biggest fan, or she says she's my biggest fan. Um, she always comes up with my best ideas. It's totally, I'm not sure if it's the same, but literally I'm, she tells me what to do and I then go and basically do it in, in lots of different ways. And she came up with this great idea, which I was, I, I was so happy that I'd been published in this law journal. I was like, this is such a prestigious law journal. It's so brilliant. And literally she was like, well, how many people have read it? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Um, and she said, well, don't you think actually what you should try and do is get your words and your work out to the most amount of people possible, amplify the message? And I was like, yeah, you're probably, you're probably right. <laughs> um, and she said, I was like, well, how am I going to do that? And she said, well, why don't you just start a blog? And this was back in 2005, five, six, when not, not that many people were blogging in truth. And uh, I just started writing on all of these football topics that were happening at the time. Carlos Tevez and Mascherano happened around that time with West Ham. Financial fair play was happening. Lots of transfer regulations were changing. Um, and, and, and what happened at the same time is then in 08, I was in a, a law firm that was quite heavily focused on technology. There was this conference that I got to help run internally at my law firm, my old law firm. And the head, the, the, the head speaker, the main speaker, was a person from a company called Twitter. But Twitter just wasn't a thing back in 2007 and eight. It was literally just starting up. So I was like, okay, well, I'll get the, the, the username Football Law. I'll start tweeting things that are coming up. I'll start blogging at the same time. But the thing was right. I was doing no football law work, or very limited football law work at the time. But what I was doing is I was building this knowledge side hustle. I mean, you can't imagine. I mean, Holly will probably tell you more than I can um, if you see her. But you know, my weekends and everything and evenings were just simply spent reading cases, tweeting, blogging, asking her to read stuff, you know, getting stuff back in, getting it over, pushing it out. And what ended up happening is I developed this, looking back, it's quite interesting. You know, I think, I think professional status is a very uh, like difficult world, world and word. Like, people from the outside thought my status was like here to a degree. <laughs> 
you know, not, not, not quite the fake it till I make it idea type of thing, but because I had a lot of knowledge, I was explaining how cases were working, I was doing an awful lot of side hustle stuff, but I was probably doing about 10 or 15% football work. And let me tell you the type of work I was actually doing whilst um, uh, I was telling everyone I was um, the main football lawyer in the UK, which I obviously wasn't. Um, I was doing agriculture. I was doing financial services. I, was, I can't remember them now, it's like so entrenched in my memory. Aviation law. I was a car parts manufacturer lawyer. That's what I was doing, which meant effectively I was a chameleon. I was telling people what they needed to hear about the experience I had with them in particular. If I was uh, financial services, if I was with a financial services client, yes, I've got lots of experience working with financial services. If I'm w speaking to a football agent, yeah, of course, I've, you know, I've done lots of experience working on intermediaries work. If I was working with a football club, it's the same. What ended up happening was two things. One, by the, end, the time at my, end of the time at my old law firm, I was probably working about 50, 60% sport and 50, 40% on all of the other types of sector work that I was doing almost about 10 years ago now. But the flip side was actually I was blogging pretty regularly. I, you know, the, the truth was is that then uh, I got a few breaks on sort of national, international television where CNN would ask me to speak, where Sky would ask me to speak, where ITV, where BBC. And that in a way was a very big disproportionate step for me to be able to convert you know, what I was saying I was doing into actually speaking articulately and accessibly about pretty complicated topics sometimes. And, um, you know, every time before I go to speak, including now, when Jesse's speaking and I'm a bit like, oh, right, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? You, you know, I remember going on BBC One live seven years ago, and this is BBC One at prime time, where someone said to me before they went on, they said, oh, just to let you know, there's probably about 11 million people watching. I was like, thank you. That's just what I needed to hear at this time in my life. So, but, you know, you just blank out and you just hope that you get asked nice questions and go from there. And so what happened was I, I realised I had this ability to convert my skill set, which wasn't necessarily in football but was in law, with my ability to read regulations, including a lot of vegetable regulations, I realised that actually football regulations, it turns out, are much more interesting than vegetable regulations. So I was really happy about that. But what I was doing really was reading every rule book that was in football and in sport to understand the rules. And then I remember what happened towards the end of my time at my old firm, Phil Fisher. Um, I had this decision to make because a few, a few um, uh, sports law firms had approached me. Um, and had said, uh, come and join, we actually really like what you're doing, etc. I can so uh, empathise with what Jesse said as well because the thing was, I was really happy where I was. I was getting paid well, I had a team that I really enjoyed working with, I was in my comfort zone, I was doing all the good stuff, but I wasn't doing as much football and sports stuff as I wanted to do, but I was quite happy with what I was doing. And, uh, and what ended up happening was, I remember this very specifically, I was walking with my wife Holly, we were, we'd just had uh, one baby, Izzy, who was two, we had another one on the way, and um, she literally told me off quite badly because I was going to stay. I was going to stay at my firm and be quite happy. She literally was like, We have spent the last 10 years waiting for this moment for the right law firm, sports law firm, to come. And here it is, by the way, 
They're willing to invest in you and give you all this time and effort and build a great team alongside you and work out whatever strategy you want. And you're going to say no. And I was like, oh. And, and really, it was, I, I am more your mum rather than your dad. <laughs> I'm the risk-averse, details-orientated, let's not, let's not rush into anything. We're okay where we are. And Holly is the, you bloody better do what I tell, otherwise there's going to be trouble. <laughs> and she was totally right. She was totally right. So I make this move to Sheridan's, where I've been now for eight and a half years. But my biggest insecurity and my biggest thing that I, I struggled with a huge, to a huge, a huge degree and a huge amount was this imposter syndrome. Like I'd, I'd done loads of football cases, I'd done loads of sports matters, then lots of transfers and all the rest of it. But the thing was, I was moving as a partner to this law firm, Sheridan's, and part of my um, uh, part of my business case was, well, you need to. They, I need to tell you how much money I can bring in as clients, um, about what clients I've got, and all the rest of it. And the truth was. When they said, how many clients do you have to bring with? And how much money do you think you'd be able to earn in your first six months? Can anyone guess what the number was? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Which was quite concerning for me <laughs> and the partners that were putting their investment in me to be able to actually you know, build a sports law practice. We had had a good sports law practice at Sheridan's. And two things happened. One was um, I started working with a client called EuroLeague Basketball. So here I am, the football lawyer whose first client is a basketball company, which was quite ironic in itself. But that had actually been built from about four years worth of attending their events, networking, and actually speaking about the financial fair play regulations, which were the cost control regulations in, in, in football. And they needed those regulations implementing in their own um, competition. So I joined their uh, MCC committee, which effectively regulated all of their teams as to how they were going to be more sustainable in basketball. And the second thing that happened, and I'm sorry I'm putting you past your lunch, but it's only about 10 minutes, I promise, and then, because hopefully these things will align in different ways. The second thing that happened, um, was I got an email three weeks into my job at uh, Sheridan's, um, and it's through um, a connection of Averk, as we'll talk about in a second. Um, but I got an email from a guy called Sam Porter, who was um, a lawyer at DC United, the MLS club. And he said, um, Daniel, I really enjoyed your uh, football blog on your website on football broadcasting rights. Um, I'm in London just for the weekend, and this was Friday evening. Um, are you around at all next week to be able to say hello? The problem was, I had to fly. My first two clients were Molde University in Norway that I was giving lectures for the week. I had to fly out Sunday evening. And then it turned out that EuroLeague Basketball then instructed me the next day to, um, to come to Barcelona that week for a meeting. So I had to go to Norway on the Sunday night until Tuesday. I then had to fly back two internal flights via Germany to get to Barcelona for Wednesday meeting. I then had to fly back to Norway for Thursday and Friday for a talk. And that's, this is the Friday before. So I said, I'm really sorry, I can't do, uh, I can't do Sunday this week because I'm away. But how about we meet Sunday morning really early before um, I fly um, to Heathrow? Um, and so that was the first thing that someone said to me afterwards. They said, I don't think too many people would have taken a Sunday morning 7.30 a.m. meeting. But that meeting literally did change my life to a degree. 
And it came about because somebody had read a blog that I'd written four years earlier that when you did the search um, for on Google for football Premier League broadcasting rights came up as the number one organic search because it obviously hit, hit the right nerve. And what happened as a result is I didn't know it at the time, but Sam's boss, a guy called Jason Levian, who's the owner of DC United, was in the midst of buying Swansea City, the Premier League club at the time. And I swear, I thought it was going to be a 10 or 15 minute chat with Sam. Jason comes along from um, the gym in his gym kit and he grills me for two and a half hours. Not joking, like proper. Like, what's the regulation on this? Why does this, how much the valuation should be? To the extent that I remember looking at my watch at 12, we had the, we had the breakfast meeting at 7.30. At 11 o'clock, I looked at my watch and thought, shit, if I don't leave in 10 minutes, I'm missing my flight um, to Mulder to be able to go. Anyway, that turned out to be the, uh, effectively the interview to be the law firm to do the first Premier League takeover with Swansea in seven years in the Premier League. There hadn't been a takeover in, until before 2012. So I'm three weeks into Sheridan's. I haven't got any, I don't think I've got any clients basically. I've just got my first client with EuroLeague. I'm lecturing at Mulder University. And then after about two weeks of some negotiation, I managed to get the first um, Premier League takeover deal in eight years. And so I send my conflict check round at Sheridan's and everybody's like, wow, who's Daniel G, this superstar that's managed to get the first Premier League takeover in the history of, the of our law firm, never mind for the last five years. And when Urquhart says it's luck, my strong view is that it is anything but luck. Because, as much as I hopefully I'm not trying to big myself up, but the point is that would never have happened if I hadn't have blogged and spent a lot of time understanding that piece six years ago. And it wouldn't also happened if I didn't know myself when I came to the meeting for them to be able to really grill me very hard. In the same way, it wouldn't have happened for Urquhart if he hadn't done that course and Mezit's dad hadn't phoned him up saying, we need help because we know you're the guy. And it wouldn't have happened, and it wouldn't happen for Jesse as well with all of the great stuff that you managed to do for so long and the languages and going out of your comfort zone. There's this great quote that I love from a Chinese philosopher. It says, opportunities are seized as they are multiplied. And it took me a while to really understand what I think it meant. But it basically means the more opportunities you create for yourself, the more opportunities happen. <laughs> and I, and what I'm what I, um, a massive fan of is people just putting themselves out there because the hardest thing to do is doing and the easiest thing to do is saying. I hope that's not confused everybody. But that's the point. Everybody talks a brilliant game. Everybody. But everyone in this room is not just talking, they're doing, they're here for this whole weekend to do this thing. They're here to do this great thing, to build knowledge, to build networks, to find new opportunities. Um, and that's what I love um, and I can see from people. Like There were people this morning and last morning here at quarter to eight to see who was here beforehand to speak to us. The seminar started at 9.30. The people here at quarter to eight. I mean, it's, it blows my mind in a bit, which is fantastic, which I really love, which is that's the enthusiasm that people have to invest in themselves to that large degree. And so um, what I just wanted to do was end on one or two important things. Um, sorry if I've uh, kept everyone up, but yeah, we'll have lunch very soon. It's very hard looking back 
um, to say it, but it's very important to understand. As human beings, we have this innate ability to put ourselves down. All of our talk to ourselves is negative talk on the whole. We're not good enough. It's not going to work out. Don't need to do the thing. No, you shouldn't. Someone else is always better. Whatever it is, I have it. I call it my monkey. It's my monkey. It's on this shoulder quite a lot of the time. And it's the instinctive part of my brain which is constantly telling me the negative of, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Don't do it, don't rush, don't make the decision, whatever else it might be. And there's a lot of research about how all of us give ourselves a lot of negative self-discussion self, um, and self-thinking. And I think the, the things that have helped me massively, one is my wife is the truth, because she's a lot, actually a lot more positive generally in life than me. She, she does and then thinks afterwards, whereas I think a lot and then possibly do after 17 weeks. Um, and the reason why I say that is it's massively important to give yourself a little bit more self-love sometimes as well, <laughs> not beat yourself up a lot of the time. But the most important thing is to surround yourself with people more sunnier than yourself. And when I mean sunnier, I mean more positive than yourself. And I'll try and give one example. Um, when Urquhart and I went to Mumbai, uh, 2018, 2019, uh, we came back afterwards and I had this chat with my wife as well. I was saying, oh, we had the best weekend. Like, Urquhart was chatting to everybody. He's got all of these great ideas. Like, he's doing this next book. He's got this idea to move to America. He's gonna conquer the world. <laughs> and, and the truth was, is like, I was so energized by your energy. Like it made me want to do more, just in the same way when Jesse, I hear your story for the first time, it's brilliant. But the brilliant thing that that enabled me to do is you've got to have people around you that inspire you that you can see that are doing cool things in equal measure. And I remember coming back from that trip just thinking, I've got to write my book now. I've got to finish my first one, get my second one done. Because you were doing it on the plane. When I was sleeping, when I was having a little sleep, I was seeing, I was like, I'm so tired. Urquhart spending three hours typing on his laptop while I'm having a sleep. Um, and then he's out in uh, Mumbai, already speaking in about six different languages to people. And here I'm on my Duolingo trying to learn basic Spanish for the first time. And you get my point. My point is generally, I think a, a lot of people in this room, a lot of people in this room are very positive and um, are very proactive um, and have a similar mindset. It's really important in your inner circle, your innermost circle, to try and create a positive loop. That the one person inspires you to do something else that inspires you to do something else that inspires you to do something else. But the issue that happens because of human nature is we're very good at being inspired, but very bad at doing things on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. So I always am the, a big fan of the phrase, which is consistency beats intensity. It's the most boring phrase in the world to say. Can you do it for five minutes every day? Can you do your gym workout for 10 minutes a day or are you just going to go to the gym once a week for 20 minutes? Tell me which is going to work out better and compound in the long term. Are you going to, when you finished your day, sit on your couch and watch an episode of Netflix 
And then when the next thing comes on saying, am I going to watch one more episode? Am I going to watch one more episode? Okay, I'll watch one more episode. Or are you going to do the thing you wanted to do that evening? Because, if I go back to the first point just very briefly, I've got no problem with admitting we're in a group of friends. I am a, there is no such thing as work and life and leisure to me. And maybe it's the same with Jesse and maybe it's the same with her. I make no apologies for it. It's not what my life is about. My life is all of it combined in some type of blur, which is work, family, and play. And the truth is, it's all play, right? In truth, if you can get it right. So there's this really great um, tech investor called Paul Graham. He's paulgraham.com. It's a really good blog. And he basically talks about this thing where he says he doesn't understand when people say, oh, I'm working from nine to five, and then I'm doing whatever it is after those times. He said, what you actually need to do is create your identity. And your identity will be ultimately a reflection of the inputs that you put in. So, take it very simply. If you are watching 10 hours of Netflix a week, that's probably likely to be your identity. If you are studying for five hours a week after your day, that's probably more likely to going to be your identity that you reflect on yourself and other people. And that's ultimately the thing. You are, in the end, a reflection of your consistent habits. And that's the cool thing um, that's going to be happening in this room. It's going to be the reason why all you guys are going to be um, uh, joining our LinkedIn group afterwards because the power of the community that's been around today is going to be so vital and it's going to be part of our sort of support network so that when we put our next events on whether you can join or not whether you want to meet people that are in this room or through people that can connect you to other people that's the beauty and the power of the great opportunities that start hopefully today thanks for listening you can follow me on twitter tiktok and instagram football law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share, and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.